0: Race science, the belief that scientific study will uncover inherent biological differences between human races, has been repeatedly debunked in the words of The Guardian and Yet like a pseudo-scientific hydra, it raises its head every so often. What's also known as scientific racism has framed studies of human intelligence and attractiveness and, most recently, emerged in conversations around genetics. The resurgence of scientific racism is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami statistics department, and Richard Campbell, professor emeritus of media, journalism, and film. Our guest today is Angela Saini. Saini is a science journalist, author, and broadcaster. She presents radio and TV programs for the BBC, and her writing has appeared in such publications as New Scientist, Prospect, The Sunday Times-Wired, and National Geographic. In 2020, Saini was named one of the world's top 50 thinkers by Prospect magazine. And in 2018, she was voted one of the most respected journalists in the UK. Her book, Superior, The Return of Race Science, was published May 2019 and was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize and the Foyles Book of the Year. Angela,
1: thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: I was wondering if we could start our conversation with you describing kind of what historic race science was or is, and how that compares to sort of its modern iteration.
1: Well, um, I think a lot of people imagine the racial categories that we use now around skin color to have been around forever. Um, But of course, they haven't been they were inventions. And the time that they were invented was around the time of the Enlightenment when scientists and naturalists in Europe were looking at the natural world and thinking about how to classify it. And as well as classifying animals and plants, they also thought about classifying us. They thought, you know, this cultural diversity that we see all around the world, all these differences that we see, maybe they rise to the level of different breeds or different species of human being. And that's where the idea of race as we use it now came from. So that's not to say that people didn't think about human difference before. Of course, they must have. But these racial categories, black, white, yellow, red, you know, these very broad racial categories that we use now, um, that's around the time that they were invented. Um, But there was, um, I mean, we know now, But it's always been true that there are no natural dividing lines between the human species. We are one human species. Um, We are very homogeneous as a species. So we're more homogeneous than any other primate. Chimpanzees have more genetic diversity than humans do. Um, So given that there are no natural dividing lines between us, any attempt at categorization is by its nature likely to be arbitrary. It can't be anything else. It has to depend on the categorizer, you know, what's important to them. And the fact that they landed on skin colour is as arbitrary as anything else, because, because at the time, there were lots of different ways of categorising people. So there were some people who thought there were a few races, some people who thought there were thousands of races. Um, the way that traditionally the word race hadn't been used very much, but traditionally the way it had been used prior to that had been to refer to a family or a tribe so if you're using it by that definition, which in, in some ways is a more coherent definition, because at least within a family, you have some genetic similarity, you know, more than you do at a continental level, then um, there could be millions of races, you know, logically by that, by that standard. Um, but it was skin colour that kind of became popular And um, that scientists ran with, European and American scientists ran with for hundreds of years. And it was given meaning really because that became one of the ingrained assumptions um, that formed the science of human difference. So there were lots of assumptions at the time, including, for instance, that women were not the intellectual equals of men, which is why women in Europe were excluded from many universities and certainly all the scientific academies of Europe Um, from the Enlightenment onwards, um, because we were just seen to be separate. We were two separate categories and women were kind of intellectually separate category. So these assumptions, um, as arbitrary and as political and unscientific though they were, um, came to form the basis, like I said, of the science of human difference. And that continued for hundreds of years, in fact, well into the 20th century. There are st- still many people who think in these terms now. Um, and that's all that race science is, you know, that it really isn't anything else.
2: Could you talk a little bit about the notion of essentialism? Because I think some of our listeners probably don't know what that is. And also, how some of these studies got past, even more recent one, got past the early editorial stage, because the s- as you point out the starting assumption is that populations are essentially different and people and that doesn't seem to get interrogated at the beginning of some of this work
1: well essentialism really cuts to the heart of this because it says that there are biological qualities that certain groups have or certain populations have that other populations don't have and what um historically people have tried to do is... um make inferences based on their assumptions around these essentialisms. So for example, that the Western world is as economically prosperous as it is, as it was for a couple of hundred years at the time that these ideas were being developed, because of some essential quality that white Europeans have that other people in the world don't have, which is a very ahistoric way of thinking about it. Because as we know, if you look through the course of human history, Europe's dominance for as long as it was, is just one part of human history. Other, other cultures and other civilizations have risen and fallen. And, and, you know, Western European civilization will go the same way. We know, you know, that's how history works. But, um, you know, it, it, what it does is try to explain society and what we can see out there in the world through nature, and say that this isn't historical, this isn't political, this isn't social, this is nothing to do with how we live or how we choose to treat each other. This is because of some qualities that we have within ourselves. Um, And it's it's an argument that remains powerful to this day. There are many, particularly on the right, um, and by this I mean the far right, the alt-right, who want to be able to make these claims, because if they can, then we don't need to do anything about inequality as we see it in the world whether that's gender inequality or racial inequality or even class inequality there are still attempts to reintroduce class into this equation as it existed in the early 20th century a lot of for example the British eugenics and race science movement was about was actually about class oh. um, and there were attempts to stay say that for example poorer people were genetically biologically inferior to richer people and that's why you had generational poverty Um, and there are some people even trying to revive that now in the 21st century believe it or not
3: you know when when i was was reading your book one thing that that really struck me was the the issue of kind of the cultural and political context in which research is done and how that that shapes and frames the way that that kind of you, you we even look at problems so i i you know this seems like this is this echoes throughout history as part of as part of this investigation can you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah absolutely i mean i think um there is this i mean i studied engineering and i was certainly trained within um a system that taught me that what we do when we do science or we do engineering or mathematics or whatever is objective that we sit apart from society we are we are above politics and The problem with that is that we forget that much of the science, including those very early assumptions I just mentioned earlier, were very much rooted in the politics of the time. They were informed by the politics of the time. And um, because they weren't interrogated enough because of that politics, that's why mistakes continued for so long. And this is how mistakes happen. Even sometimes orthodoxies can build within the sciences. Fallacious orthodoxies can build within the sciences for a very long period of time because nobody questions these basic assumptions because they assume that everybody who's doing this is perfectly objective so there can't be any problems here. Um, And that is something I think we need to challenge. I trust the scientific method. I really do think it's the best one of the best ways we have of understanding the universe and of understanding ourselves as humans. But but it's limited by our own, by the fact that we are human and that we yes. we have these biases and prejudices. Yes. We are informed by the world around us and that shapes the questions that we ask, the limits to what we can imagine. You know, for example, it's only relatively recently that scientists have started challenging the idea that there is a gender binary you know, to think outside those boxes, and that's because it literally wasn't within the purview of their imagination to, that there could be anything else out there. And society, in that sense, has challenged it because everyday people and their discomfort with these gender categories and how they feel about um, how they feel about these things, and challenging that politically, has then entered into the sciences, and then scientists start asking these new questions. So we have to accept that. And if we can accept it and understand it and engage with the fact that science sits within society, that's embedded within cultures, then um, then I think we can get closer to objectivity, because then we can understand exactly what it is that we're looking at.
3: Yeah, just as a, a quick follow up, I remember year, years ago when I was reading Stephen Jay Gould's some of his uh, the work that that he had written that was when i had the epiphany about kind of cultural context in which in which science is done and i i found myself thinking oh my what what kind of you know how is this how is the world in which i live now and the culture in which i live now shaping the way that i ask questions or how i look at problems or how i think about interpreting results and analyses and and that's a that's a that's a that's an important and challenging consideration as as we do our work Angela, i was going to
2: just follow up on that how is this sort of uh, the politicization of science during the COVID crisis? I mean, this has really been a remarkable thing. Is this a new phenomenon or is it in a new stage or I just the, the, the mask wearing thing in the states here, you know, d- divided politically? It's just it's sort of incredible to me. And the stories that are emerging of people dying in the Midwest who refuse to admit they have they have COVID that they have something else is this a, a phenomenon that you've seen before in studying the history of this?
1: And no, it, it's always been there. There have always been people. I mean, there are lots of different. I think there are lots of different things happening this year. One of them is, as you say, conspiracy theories and um, these kind of pseudoscientific conspiracy theories that can be quite elaborate and especially. Um, popular because they spread so easily on social media that, you know, this phenomenon of misinformation, and disinformation that gets spread so quickly through things like WhatsApp and Facebook and Twitter. Um, and it's because we consume things so, so fast, and we, we don't always have time to challenge it. Um, it's very easy for these incorrect memes to kind of proliferate. Um, And it is something I'm working on. I set up a group last year, um, which now sits under the Royal Institution here in London, which is one Mm. of the oldest scientific societies in the world. And we are a group of journalists, policymakers, um, social media experts, counter-terrorism experts, academics, a very broad range of people all interested in this problem of pseudoscience in whichever way it manifests. And um, what you quickly start to realise when you look at this is that... um, These people who, you know, whichever conspiracy theory they adhere to, whether it's an anti-vax one or whether it's a flat earth or a climate change denial conspiracy theory or whatever it is, what they have in common, because they don't have anything in common demographically, they come from all kinds of walks of life, age, everything. But what they do tend to have in common is a mistrust of authority. And this is that common thread you see. And actually that's understandable because you know, very often our authority figures are not always that trustworthy. <laughs> and especially these days when we have all these populist leaders around the world who are willing to lie sometimes outright to the to their citizens, then it's very easy to build a mistrust of authority and to buy into certain conspiracy theories. And that is why it's sometimes very well educated, very sceptical people are sometimes the most vulnerable to this, because what they are really doing is questioning what they're seeing to such an extent that they question everything, you know, even the fundamental basics. And um, that is the point at which we need to engage with these topics. This isn't about ignorance always. You know, very often, especially, I mean, I looked at anti-vaxxers, particularly for a documentary last year. These are often very well-educated, middle-class people who are very well clued up on the facts. But what they're choosing to do is dismiss a certain set of facts and choose another set of facts that fits with their fears or their worldview. And what the conspiracy theorists do, um, the ones who spread this kind of misinformation, and disinformation, and who do that for lots of different reasons, including sometimes state actors. Mm-hmm. So there are Russian bots, you know, spreading this kind of stuff around. But what they try and do is play on those fears. So, for example, the legitimate fear of a parent that their child might be hurt if they are given this medicine or this vaccine. And then they draw you into that rabbit hole of uh, false facts and everything and and sometimes seeded with accurate stuff. You know, for example, real examples of vaccine injury, but marginal, but (laughs) real examples. And then use that uh, to kind of build a case that seeds that doubt in your mind so it can be i think it's very complex the way the psychology of this works and especially with the internet and the dynamics around the internet it makes it even more difficult but it's a phenomenon that's always existed there have always been doubts around these things and often what's happened for example with the vaccine um doubts is that a big pandemic like this will happen everyone feels then they need to take the vaccine and then the doubt kind of subsides (laughs) a little bit Mm -hmm. and shocking though it is and it's unfortunate that it happens that way that people have to die in order to be confronted with the devastating reality of the importance of these things but that's often how these things happen
0: you're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with science journalist Angela Siney. Angela, so uh, you write about the work of Karen Fields um, and the idea of racecraft, and I, you, um, I'm trying to find. I had to pull up on my phone because I love this this line where you say, um, in thinking about you know race, sort of in relation to sort of witchcraft and sort of it being a construct, and about race, writing it's as biologically real as witches on broomsticks. Um, <laughs> I love that line, but I also, I I think back to Richard's earlier question about sort of editors letting these things through, right? So you also write about a blog post a man wrote uh, about sort of the, you know, lack of intelligence and attractiveness of black women, and then talk about sort of these scientific papers that get through. And I wonder, it's sort of the inverse of what Richard just asked, if, if because people are credentialed who are pushing some of these views, that it lends sort of truth and and sort of vigor to this idea of there being what is it biological i can't remember how one of the people you talk to biological diversity or something right um human biodiversity yes that's (laughs) the that's the term right um whether like the credentials behind some of these people sort of reifies the idea that race is somehow real
1: Yeah, and it's a real problem, I think. Um, It's a difficult one to tackle because I think the nature of academia is that it is a broad church. And in some ways, it needs to be a broad church in order to maintain academic freedom. Um, And I value that. I do think that's important. But at the same time, um, what we get is, as a result of that, we do get people, and we've always had these people, so they've been existed right from the beginning, um, people who hold very uh, marginal political views who then turn to science to um, justify those political views. So many of the people, for example, that I write about um, in Superior or who are interviewed for Superior about their, um, what have been termed by some people uh, scientifically racist or pseudoscientific positions or papers that they've written, most of them are not geneticists. In fact, none of them are geneticists. Most of them tend to be psychologists, Uh, political scientists you know people outside these disciplines where the work of where the real kind of biology around human difference is done Um, and very often when you kind of scratch beneath the surface and this is something I've tried to do very hard in my work is not just um, interview people who are critical of race but understand those who adhere to these racist theories or what have been termed racist theories why do they do it why are they so attached to these ideas and when you dig underneath very often what comes out is a kind of um political underbelly so you know they're anti-immigration or um they're anti-racial mixing or they feel that there should be some form of segregation between people that equal opportunities are a bad idea that affirmative action is a waste of time Um, That's often what lies beneath all of this and what they're really doing is using the science as a tool to justify these political beliefs. And sometimes they go through quite unbelievable contortions, uh, intellectual contortions to be able to do that um, because the evidence really doesn't support the idea, number one, that race is real or that there are these deep psychological differences (laughs) between us. But um, they won't let it go. And what they cling to increasingly is um, the possibility that one day evidence will come along to prove them right. Um, And, you know, you could say that about pretty much any area of science because we don't know everything. We're never going to know everything, especially because human nature is not just some simple biological kind of substrate. It's it who we are is heavily influenced by our environment, our culture. Our biology is affected by our environment and culture, how we develop our brains, everything. So because all these things are so intertwined, you cannot extricate them. There, are, There is no separate nature and nurture. They're all intertwined with each other. We are always changing. Um, so you can never get a full grip on who we are as human beings. You can never say definitively what human nature is. And that's really where the the territory that they occupy now is that uncertainty, <laughs> and I, I guess they will occupy it forever as long as they hold these political beliefs and that's the that 's a space that they'll that they 'll live in um the The thing we have to challenge is not just the science that or, or the pseudoscience that they 're peddling but really understand why they why they so desperately want it to be true
3: you You talk a lot about um where the work appears, where the, some of the the more recent research and and it, it reinforced t- uh, for me the idea of, of identifying funding sources as well as aden- uh, you know identifying kind of the outlets for this work just because it's mm-hmm. it's appearing or just because it's been supported doesn't doesn't necessarily mean there isn't an agenda that goes that goes with that. Can, you know can can you describe a little bit about how you know digging into that and kind of how do we how do we kind of inoculate ourselves against these kinds of, of impacts
1: well um within scientific publishing there's there is a wide range of quality so there are some journals um that are right at the bottom end, like the Mankind Quarterly. So this was a pseudo-scientific journal that was set up after the Second World War by race scientists, including one Nazi race scientist who carried out experiments on um, the body parts of Holocaust victims, some of them children. So he and others all around the world, I should say scattered all over the world, so n- not confined to any one region, um, set up this uh, publication, which is still Im- you can still read today. So it's still being published. In fact, I interviewed the person who was then the editor of the Mankind Quarterly when I was writing Superior. Um, so in that sense, on the margins of scientific publishing, there are people trying to keep these ideas alive in those circles. Very often, they're writing for each other, so they cite uh-huh. each other, write for each other. They're not generally cited in the mainstream. Um, in mainstream academic journals. But some of them also do have a presence in mainstream academic journals. So one thing I learned in 2018 um, during my research was that two of the editors of Mankind Quarterly were sitting on the editorial board of the journal Intelligence, which is a major journal published by Elsevier in the field of intelligence, which itself is a very fraught field. So it has a it has its roots in eugenics as well. It has a very dark history, a history it hasn't completely let go of, unfortunately, even to this day. So there are still figures within the intelligence community who um, are considered racist um, by others within academia who have been denied platforms or denied access to conferences because of their views. But anyway, so these two um, these two people were on the board of this journal And Elsevier, which is a major publishing group, has very strict rules around who can sit on editorial boards. And when I asked them about why they allowed these two people who had very weak academic credentials to be sitting, one of them, in fact, has been he had an kind of honorary position position. with an Irish university, which has now been rescinded as well. So he has no academic affiliation anymore. And I and I asked them, why do you have these people on your journal board? Because you have certain standards that you're meant to uphold. And they entirely washed their hands of it and said, it's not for us. It's for the editor-in-chief. The editor-in-chief told me it was a matter of academic freedom, that this was about having a plurality of views within the journal Um, Which is worrying because the journal itself um, has published a number of articles over recent years um, by people who have had links to the alt-right and white supremacists who, um, you know, have strong connections with the Mankind Quarterly, have edited or written for it. And um, he just refused to do anything. But... By the end of 2018, when I went back to check the editorial board when I was um, updating my references, I noticed that those two people had been quietly removed from the editorial board. So I feel that maybe, um, because I wrote an article at the time, that maybe there was some pressure within the editorial board to clean up their act a little bit. But the the point I'm trying to make is that these are not isolated incidents. There are other... Um, problems within other journals if anyone goes to the brilliant website retraction watch you can see how common this actually is that racist pseudoscience as recently as this year has had to be retracted in fact one paper published earlier this year was retracted from a journal um, after criticisms of how uh, politically motivated it seemed to be Um, and then the authors themselves admitted that their data was shoddy (laughs) and that they sh- that they should retract it. So <laughs> you really have to ask yourself, you know, are we upholding the standards that we need in academic publishing? And this isn't just a matter for academia anymore. This is a matter for all of us because the public has access to these papers now because yeah. of because of the internet. And if we can't trust what we're reading, if these kind of attractions are going to continue and if we're going to get dodgy people sitting on the boards of journals writing papers, then it's going to erode trust in science even further um, and it's going to damage the reputation of science and make it much harder I think for good scientists to do good work. Um, but there are people I mean I know I work with journal editors and journal groups and there are people trying to tighten those standards, not just around quality but also around the ethics and looking at the repercussions of, of their work.
2: Angela, how much of that, this is a problem? I think you write, I think this was from your, your piece in Nature, where you say, mm. scientists rarely interrogate the histories even of their own disciplines. Mm. How much of what you just talked about is, is because of that, is because we're not, the scientists themselves aren't even aware of the long trajectory of history and I think you write elsewhere, John probably won't like <laughs> to hear this, but how humanities professors and humanities have provided a stronger critique here than science itself. I think this is changing. I mm-hmm. think there's more attention being paid to the, the history. But talk a little bit about this failure of science to interrogate its own histories.
1: Well, humanities does also have its own problems when it comes to these kind of (laughs) histories. But it's within the social sciences that you often see the best critiques, I think, of of the sciences and one of the problems that we have is that scientists very rarely engage with that body of knowledge so for example when it comes to medicine and race health and race there's actually a huge wonderful body of literature that we have within the social sciences looking at the effects of racism and discrimination on health on the body mentally on all of these things and yet um In the COVID-19 pandemic this year, I saw a number of high profile physicians and medical researchers looking to genetics to explain the racial disparities that we were seeing immediately. You know, by March, April, as soon as it was clear that black and Asian people in certain countries were dying at higher rates than others, they jumped straight to genetics, which if they were aware of that body of literature that shows the effect of racism, discrimination structurally on how we live and how people are treated, and not just that, also around class and all these different factors. I mean, a lot of this is to do with socioeconomic status, and a lot of that work is done within the social sciences. Um, Then we would, I don't think we would be jumping to those kind of essentialist conclusions or assumptions immediately. Um, So we do need, I think, more dialogue and more humility, I think, sometimes among scientists that... It's not just hard science that contains all the data that you need, that there is data out there in the world that is actually equally and sometimes even more important when we're talking about certain, certain things. Um, and that failure to understand not just that body of social and cultural knowledge, but also history, I think is why a lot of mainstream scientists fall into these traps, why they make these mistakes. And I know this from my own experience, because like I said, I studied engineering. I was... I was very poorly exposed to the social sciences when I was at university but um as an adult after I left I was working at the BBC and in my spare time I started doing a degree at uh, King's College London, which is just here in London, um, in their Department of War Studies. So this was an interdisciplinary science and security course in which, taught by social scientists mainly, but also a few people who have experience in sciences and engineering. And for the first time, I learned about the construction of knowledge, feminist critiques of knowledge, all the, you know, all these Foucault everything all these things that I had never been taught before I suddenly got an introduction to and also the history of science technology how ideas develop the the cultures that they develop in and how that shapes how we think about them and it completely changed the way I think about um, ideas and I think I really very firmly believe, and in fact, I've been advocating this all this year in every university talk I've given, that we should integrate science, uh, history and humanities teaching into science teaching more. I really very strongly believe that every time you learn a scientific concept, in whichever discipline it is, you should know the background to it.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Angela, thank you so much for being <laughs> here today. Yes, You're thank welcome. you, Angela. Thank you for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu, or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.